It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. Jackson Gatlin here, host of the Monday edition Locked On NBA podcast. Every Monday, I cover the three biggest stories in the NBA with the local experts from Locked On. It's an awesome recap of the weekend of the NBA and a look at what's ahead. Mark your calendars on Monday to join me for Locked On NBA podcast, available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, the Brooklyn Nets battled at home against the Sacramento Kings but came up short. We break down why the strategy was correct. It was the execution that failed them in the end. You are Locked On Nets, your daily Brooklyn Nets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Ah, yes, my friends, it is the Locked On Nets podcast right here on the Locked On Podcast Network. It's your team, the Brooklyn Nets, every single day. Over there, you're going to find Doug Norrie, owner-operator of DFSR, for all your daily fantasy sports rankings. From DraftKings to FanDuel, he's got you covered. I'm Adam Arbrick, breaking down the New York football giants on the One Giant Podcast and the Devils on the Devils Puck Luck Podcast. We thank you for making us your first listen of the day. We're free on all those great platforms. And we'll let you know, today's episode is brought to you by FanDuel. FanDuel Sportsbook is the official sportsbook of Locked On. Make every moment more. Visit FanDuel.com slash Locked On today to get started. And Doug, we start this off, I think, by saying it's disappointing to lose the game. But from an X's and O's standpoint, from having a plan coming in, there was a lot that I liked. I just wish that it happened on the scoreboard. Yeah, man. Look, I look. It's a brutal loss. The Nets, yeah. you know, dropping. They drop another one here. I don't want to gloss over the fact that they've just, you know, lost a couple games in a row. Both, you know, maybe the Thunder wasn't as winnable, but they were winning that game. Just kind of dropped off. And this Kings game, you know, they're in. They're in it, and they especially come back late and they're storming back. And those are always sometimes the hardest ones because you feel like there was possibly a, you know, snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> um, to say, you know, to some degree. I agree with you, and we'll talk about it, where the Nets, um, I think they had some strategic pieces that were actually totally correct in this game and in a lot of ways proved that they were right. I mean, there was there's a lot of things you can point to in this one that was like, hey, they did a lot of things correctly. The problem is it, there's some themes that have gone on all season long with this team that rear their ugly head in such a terrible fashion in this game that is ultimately the reason they lost. So it's, it's definitely the tale of two games uh, from that, from that piece, but you can't ignore the fact that the nets have had troubles with very specific parts of the game this season. And to some degree, this Kings game exemplified sort of all of them. Right. And like problems they had even going back to Katie Kyrie, like this, this game was really, really problematic. We'll get into it all. So yeah, I'm with you. Like, Definitely going to point out some things we, we really liked because it's because there clearly were some. But if you've been watching this team all season long, you're ripping your hair out. I got to wear the hat for this one because I can't <laughs> show. I got, you know, I got nothing left. Like, you're you're ripping your hair. Out. Hair. Like, 
when the You're game like started all season long with some of this these same problems for this team which we'll get into yeah, 101.96 is the final here, and I mean, that's almost the jumping off point. When you see a box score like that, the Sacramento Kings, they are the highest scoring offense in the NBA, 121 points a game. If you look down and you say you held the Kings to 101, chalk it up to a victory. Like You would assume that a lot of things went right for you. Unfortunately, and let's, let's stay on the strategy piece of this to start here. They made a change when it came to defensively and how they wanted to approach Sabonis, the the elephant, the one word elephant in the room that seems to constantly rear his ugly head, whether it was with the Pacers or now with the Kings against the Brooklyn Nets. They switched up their strategy when it came to switching. It was right. Unfortunately, that key thing that you're speaking to, which is rebounds, was really the main issue that I think you can look, you can get confused about saying, oh, they should have done something different. No, it was right. They just couldn't secure enough rebounds to make that be the correct decision and to reward the correct decision from the team. Yeah, look, you know, not to bury too hard here, the, the Kings are the best offense in the league this year. Like, it's kind of not all that close, 116.9 offensive efficiency. That's like the best ever <laughs> offensive efficiency. Now, offensive efficiency is way up across the league this year. So this league's this, this year's built a little different when it comes to overall offense. But this is like the greatest offensive efficiency team like we've ever seen the Nets yeah. held them to a hundred, the Nets held them to 101 points. Like that's not nothing, right? <laughs> like this is, that's just, that's a feat. Like, and it, and it wasn't just like luck. They had a specific strategy. You mentioned the switching. It was very clear early on that they did not want Sabonis to get them into to, they didn't want the Kings to be able to take advantage of their full switching scheme, which they usually run. We've seen centers feast on this where they get the switch on the pick and roll and then the center either rolls or just seals off the, the smaller defender. Like we saw this with eight and a bunch of times uh, with Phoenix. Like anyone who has offensive acumen um, is just going to seal off the smaller defender, get the ball in the post, post repost, and and cook. They actually didn't switch a lot. Like they kept they they came over almost everything in and kept try to keep Claxton home as much as possible. And then later mm -hmm. DFS home as much as possible on Sabonis. I, I got to be honest, it mostly worked. Now, D Sabonis was really efficient in this game, but he still only got up 14 shots in, in 39 minutes. Like it yeah. wasn't like he was a super high usage guy. I thought that strategy was correct. And it, it actually, in some ways, threw the Kings off of what they want to do in the pick and roll with Sabonis and guys like Fox and Monk. Like they're, so I get they lost, but it's like, hey, that strategy, I think like from a coaching standpoint, I think that that was correct, right? Like yeah. it was, they, they limited the offensive touches for their best offensive player. They kept overall initial shots down. The looks were not amazing. Like, and that strategy I think was pretty correct. And it was very obvious. Look, you know, if you watch the Nets all season, they switch everything. Like that's mostly what they want to do, right? They want to switch as much as possible. One through five. That's what they have the personnel for, especially in their starting lineup, keeping Claxton home and going away from the strategy. I was like, okay, this is kind of working. They're limiting the touches. Um, but like, as you'll get to here in a second, it was the next part that they just couldn't deal with. Yeah. And that's, so, I mean, you talk about the second chance opportunities, the defensive ah. rebounding for Brooklyn or the offensive rebounding for the, uh, the Kings. And that's where you're going to look at. You, you said it before we started here, it was offensive rebounds. Sabonis out rebounded the Brooklyn nets in this game. So, uh, you know, that was the, which well, you hold see. on. Here's the, you want the, here's the number. Like yeah. uh, you say out rebound. Sabonis had seven offensive rebounds. The nets well, had three as a team. Three. And by the way, like he he doubled. He didn't just out rebound them. He doubled them up in offensive rebounds. Like he 
it's it's so embarrassing. I like the <laughs> sorry, the Nets had thir- they, no, no. the overall rebounding was actually cl- a little closer to even, but it's these offensive ones, right? Like there's just such killers. No, and it, it was well, funny too because even when you say it, like he, you know, he out rebounded offensive rebounds, beat the Brooklyn Nets, and seven's a lot. But you would think in order to out rebound offensively your opposition, you'd have to be going double digit offensive rebounds. The Nets only had three. So the, 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 the contrast between those two ends of the floor and the second chance opportunities, that's really what I think ended up being so difficult to then recover from because you saw it more in the second half than in the first. First half, it was, yes, the offensive rebounds, kicking out, resetting the offense, and then maybe getting a second chance opportunity for the Kings. The other, the other way that it went in the second half was, and this I think is, is the wear down effect when you're playing against Sabonis and he wants to be in the paint. He wants to be physical with you. All of a sudden, those offensive rebounds, it became, I'll get the rebound and I'll go up a second time. And I'll get that rebound and I'll go up a third time if that's what it takes because at a certain point, the fouls start piling up. He got to the line nine times and it just becomes – that's the cumulative impact, I think, of that. And there's a demoralizing aspect to it too, right? Again, you do everything correctly. You feel like the strategy is right. You you defend it. He misses. And then they get the extra chance, right? And I think that that does mentally end up wearing on you. And that's where like some of these like, you know, lackadaisical fouls or frustration fouls start to come in, especially on the defensive end when you feel like you're doing it right and you're not getting rewarded by being able to move that ball in transition, have floor spacing, and then attack on the offensive end where we'll get into in a second, things did not go according to plan either. And that's just luck or lack thereof when it came to perimeter shooting. Yeah. Like, so on the season, the nets, just a couple things. And again, this is going to reinforce the, you do a lot of things, right. But when you have this like sort of total Achilles weakness, right? Like this Achilles heel that they just can't seem to overcome. It's just going to be a problem. And this has been all season long. The nets rank 27th in opponents, offensive rebounds. The only three teams worse are Minnesota, Oklahoma City, and the, the Pacers. Um, and then they rank 26th in opponents, uh, uh, excuse me, yeah, for, so fourth, fifth to last in opponents' second chance points. Only teams behind them Pistons, Jazz, Pacers, Thunder, like all basically lottery teams, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so, like this, and by the way, this was a problem when they had KD and Kyrie too. Like it wasn't right. like just it went away. I mean, I, of course, those guys like aren't centers or anything, but this isn't, hasn't been a problem. This has been, a problem all season, all season long yep. with this team. They just allowed this to happen time and time again. And he, tonight it was just so obviously glaring that it just sucks. It sucks because they, they're like, they can win these games, like, except they just can't secure these offensive rebounds. And it was amazing too. We'll get to, we'll move off this in a second, but it was amazing that the game basically ended like that too. Cause they're in the middle of this run. They're in the middle of this run. They're trying to come back and the Kings grab like four offensive rebounds in the last, in under a last minute. And three of them were like on one possession. Eight possessions, eight minutes, one, eight seconds off. Three of them on yeah. one possession. Three were on yeah. one possession, and then the and then the last one was on the basically the final possession. And yeah. it was just like right. If we're gonna sum up a game, it's like these great defensive stands, this historically great offensive team can't score, and the Nets just can't. They can't capitalize on it, and that's just the end of it. So. Let's drill down on some of these specific players for Brooklyn, things that didn't work so well for them, some late sequences, and then there's even more statistics here to suggest that the Nets did a lot of other things right, had a lot of things go their way to still come up short and obviously only being able to put up under 100 points. All right, Nissan's Most Electric Player of the Week brought to you by the all-new, all-electric 2023 Nissan Aria. Now you think, I'm going to say, uh, Nissan play, most electric player of the week is Demonis Sabonis for what he did to the Nets tonight. No, no, no. We're going with Nick Claxton in this one. Why? Claxton, 32 minutes, 14 points, 
14 boards, a plus two in a game that they lost. And like we just said before, elegant sleek on that defensive end. They had all the right ideas. It was just securing the final rebounds that they had a problem with. That is what you're going to get with a Nissan Aria. Brilliantly fierce, fiercely elegant, stunningly powerful. The 2023 Nissan Aria packs pin to your seat power and premium intelligence all in one EV. The all new, all electric 2023 Nissan Aria. The EV for people who love to drive. Shop now at NissanUSA.com. No matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax experts make them count. Did you say no to a big wedding and elope at the county courthouse? That's a move. Did you go back to school to get your degree? That's a move. Did you relocate for a fresh start? Well, that's literally a move. Maybe you moved into a houseboat instead of a house house or switched gears from rideshare driving to video game streaming. Or you rode the stock market to the moon and back. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, getting you every credit and deduction you deserve. They'll file with 100% accuracy and get you your max refund guaranteed. So switch to TurboTax. Make your moves. They'll make them count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Okay, so when we turn our attention then to, I mean, we're going to get to individual play. There's some late sequences here, but that tie actually into the theme of just maybe unlucky bounces. A lot of open shots here, especially late. Cam Johnson in the corner. There was some suggestion. I was watching the quick start of the post game of like, was that a foul in the corner? I didn't see any complaints. I didn't see any, you know, irate reactions from anyone. He went down on that shot, but that thing is about as far down as it can go. You see Royce O'Neal and Yuta Watanabe on the bench just about to be elated and then absolutely dejected in the fact that it doesn't fall. But these two teams, by the way, combined for 162 shots, 82 for the Kings, 80 for the Nets. That is not a particularly high number by league average. And when we think about the three-point shooting for Brooklyn, 14 of 39, a lot of volume there. They are, by the way, and this is skewed potentially, obviously going back to Kyrie and Kevin Durant. They sit there in three-point percentage, fourth in the league right now. The Kings are eighth in the league at just over 37%. The Kings were terrible from beyond the arc, 13 of 41. And this is just to to reiterate how damning what happened on the defensive boards ends up being because in a game where the shots weren't falling for them, and a lot of it actually think was quality defense from Brooklyn, even out on the perimeter, you still end up getting punished because they can put up 41 of those. And the 31% is still enough with all the interior offense that they had going for them. That's that's both sides of the court and both sides of the three-point shooting. You can pick your poison on which way you want to focus. Well, I mean, just to start, I I know this is like the hallmark of like, you know, sour fans when they just want to say, oh, they missed a lot of easy easy shots or whatever. Like the Nets really did actually have tons of great looks in this game, and they just really just couldn't go down. Like for whatever, it just sometimes it just happens. They had at least five that just rimmed out. Like it just sometimes that's just the way the sort of the ball bounces on a given night. I thought I thought from an offensive standpoint, their looks were pretty clean in in this game. I mean, like down the Johnson one was a good look late. Bridges had a bunch of good corner corner three looks where they were able to get good penetration into the paint. Um, And I actually think strategically the Nets, again, have pretty much the right strategy in this game, which was either run. They try to get Sabonis into pick and roll or into switches. It's not pick and roll. They could try to get uh, Sabonis into switches as many times as possible when they could with a primary ball handler. They wanted to get penetration into the paint either through the primary dribbler or through Claxton on the short roll. They mostly did that. 
and then ball movement around the arc. I, I thought that execution was mostly fine. I, I don't think we saw too much stagnation offensively. It was just when they got to the final piece, and this is like kind of similar to the rebounding piece. It's just you get you kind of do everything right, and then you get you 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 kind of do everything right, and then you get to the very end of it, and it just doesn't go in, right? <laughs> right like, yeah. And so hey, well, you and I, we talked about this going back to every iteration of this team. We don't have to keep saying back to the Kevin Durant days. There are some games when you come out of it and you feel like you checked all the boxes, and this is the good possessions, right? That's a good possession. It was a well-run set. The execution was there. The shot doesn't go down. That doesn't mean that steps one, two, and three were wrong, bad, or not the right decision. It's just that sometimes that's the way it goes. Cam Johnson felt like in this game to be the poster child of like just not quite going down. He was very quiet to start this game. And then when he started getting to the flow in the second half, it just, again, it was like, yeah, one or two mid-range shots. Was he 4 of 11 from the field? Couldn't get it to go 2 of 6 from beyond the arc. I mean, this was a 36 minutes quiet game from him. And for a team like this, not something that you can afford to have him come in with. And that's not a knock on, but just a game like that from Cam Johnson is going to start to make it a lot harder for someone else to pick up the slack. The other thing that I think, as much as we're praising what staying at home with Claxton on Sabonis and liking that, Something that I thought worked really well for them initially in this game was, again, and we said this before, at least I've noticed it before, the ball movement is there, making the extra pass, the floor spacing. In this instance, I saw a lot of great sequences where it was getting into Claxton in the paint, and he was making the quick decision to outlet it, to get it back out of his hands. Now, there's been plenty of times, had the little mid-range push shot that went for him. He's getting to the basket. He's getting those to go. But in the second half, in the third quarter, when they start bringing the help defense, when Sabonis is already on Claxton, he needs to make that quick, instant decision. I need to get the ball out of my hands immediately because I'm only one outlet pass to the corner and an extra kick to the top of the key away from setting up more of shots that may not fall but are still the right shots to be in place for this team. Yeah, because ultimately the Nets just want to bomb threes, right? Like that is what the, they would like. You know, to. They're not going to ever really have a good interior game with this personnel. They don't have a true like offensive center. We love Claxton. That's just not his game. You know, since you mentioned before about the three point shooting, and this is why Claxton needs to make these reads as much as possible and why they basically have to make as many reads as, as they can, because this is just really the best way for them to score since the trade. Uh, of the since the Durant trade, which I'll just put as the defining line between like sort of like the old Nets and the new Nets, mm-hmm. um, the Nets rank sixth overall in three point attempts behind some basically, I mean, some good teams the Celtics, the Warriors, the Bucks, the Mavericks, right? The Blazers, and then the Nets. Those are in that timeline. Now, they're only the problem is they're only hitting, so they rank sixth overall in, in attempts, but they rank uh 16th in efficiency, so they're just they're just not going down again. Something to be expected just because of their overall personnel. But in some ways, like we saw tonight from these guys, they are going to kind of live by the three and die by the three. And yeah. I and I do think sometimes those looks are not clean. Like, I don't think all games are put together equally when it comes to this. But the, like you said, these Cam Johnson shots, a couple of the Bridges ones, even some even some O'Neal looks that came off really clean. Yes. That, yeah. That, that just didn't go. That just couldn't go down. And I hate I, I really don't want to throw like dirt on them here because, again, I think most of it was fine. We don't say this every game. Sometimes it's just a total grind. Like, yeah. I, did you get a grindy feeling from this personnel tonight? Like on offense, I did not get that feeling. Like, no, it no. wasn't a lot of just end the shot clock stuff. It was actually really decisive stuff. 
very different actually than we've seen them in the past. Like we know Dinwiddie dribbling it down down to the end of the shot clock and stuff. I mean, did you get the sense? Because I think this person was like actually kind of gelling really well together. It was just the final, the very final moment where it couldn't come together. Yeah, I mean, two of seven for Bridges for me on the arc. I said Cam Johnson, two of six, three of sevens for Spencer Dinwiddie. Three of sevens, fine. You know, that's fine. But even inside of the shot selection, you know, mid range, we're talking about perimeter shots. Those are the ones that need to fall. We're going to talk about the bench coming up here in a second. But to your point, I mean, you're talking about 23, 14, and 18 for uh, Bridges, Claxton, and Dinwiddie. You know, I said the 10 point game from Cam Johnson. It's just one more bucket from each of them. Right. It's one more three pointer going down for those top three guys, Bridges, Johnson and Dinwiddie, which they're all very capable of, of hitting one of those shots or DFS who's in the starting lineup. One of four from beyond the arc. It's just three more of those go down. And this thing is going down to the wire and you get to play the closing sequences a lot differently. Like, right. A lot of times there's a five point loss and those those rebounds on the defensive end, the second chance is draining it. But you're playing things so much differently, right? Bridges jacks up a very fast triple because he feels like he needs to go get it. And Jock Vaughn is imploring everyone to settle down. It's just about the two-minute mark. But you could feel the team now, again, cumulative impact. You keep pushing and pushing and pushing. You think you're making all the right plays. And when you don't get rewarded with made baskets, then you start to say, well, I'll chuck one. I'll chuck one because, damn it, one of these has to go in. Maybe I need to stop running quality sets and just go hog wild here. Coming up in a second, we'll discuss the bench players, a new set of individuals that entered into the uh, rotations for Jacques Vaughn and Yuta Watanabe and Edmund Sumner. What did that sample size tell us? Did it confirm some of the things that we have been speaking to about needing to expand the depth that they use? All right, before we get to that, have you know that this show is brought to you and sponsored by BetterHelp. Look, you know, we're going through these times right now. It could be a good time to check in on yourself, You know, try to figure out the lifelong process of just figuring and growing and changing things about you. Therapy is all about deepening that self-awareness and understanding. Sometimes we don't know what we want. Sometimes we react the way, don't know why we react the way we do. Sometimes we just need to talk things out better help connects you with licensed therapists who can take you on the journey of self-discovery wherever you are if you're thinking of starting therapy give better help a try it's entirely online it's designed to be super convenient flexible suited to your schedule look it's it's therapy for this day and age right like you just need to go out there you need to talk to someone better help is the system to use it you fill off a brief questionnaire get matched with a licensed therapist switch therapist anytime for no additional charge to find someone that works with you discover your potential with better help visit betterhelp.com slash locked on mba to get 10 percent off your first month that's better help com slash locked on mba this is jake from locked on locked on has teamed up with state farm to spotlight some of the greatest supporting players in nba history after beating the heat led by lebron james and Dwayne wade in 2011 dirk nowitzki won an nba title and proved himself to be one of the greatest basketball players of all time but there was one player in the starting lineup for the last three games of the finals that helped support Dirk all the way to a championship, J.J. Barea. Led by J.J. and Jason Terry, the Mavs' second unit proved to be the strength throughout the playoffs, where they led the NBA in bench scoring. But for games 4, 5, and 6 in the NBA Finals, Mavs coach Rick Carlisle inserted Barea into the starting five to help the Mavs space the floor and put more playmaking around Dirk. J.J. Barea had a knack for running the pick-and-roll with Dirk that helped the Mavs score more efficiently on their run to a title. Dirk Nowitzki couldn't score the way he did if he didn't have much-needed support from someone like J.J. Barea. Sometimes, you and I need that kind of support, too. Think of State Farm like a pivotal team player. When you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember the jingle and just say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
Okay, so when we turn our attention then, I think, to one area, and, and I just, the last episode, I, I said, here's the case why Edmund Sumner, and I wanted to get to you to Watanabe, but I ended up getting so wrapped up in Sumner because of the backcourt um, that I didn't even get to flesh out you to Watanabe. I thought that this was the exact sample size, even in the loss, of why Jock Vaughn should be running a deeper rotation. Because in games like these, when the shots aren't quite falling for certain players, and actually, if I go back, I want to make sure I check this on Curry was like the bright spot coming off the bench here. Five of 10, three of five from deep. I wasn't sure how many he got up there from beyond the arc, 14 points. But Cam Thomas, again, they bring him in six minutes. He doubled it from, from the game prior, but he wasn't effective. He didn't look like he could figure it out out there. The offense stagnated with him in. Okay. So Jacques Vaughn, after you have uh, Nicholas Claxton picks up a lot of fouls. So he gets into a little bit of trouble in that regard. You have Finney Smith start to pick some up. We thought, at least initially, I thought that they were going to bring in Yuta to go pseudo small ball five. Instead, he came in initially for Dorian Finney-Smith and played with Claxton. And guess what? For that little burst, he did all the things that we've seen Yuta Watanabe do throughout the season with the superstars and without them now. He did, he's solid defensively on the offensive end, makes himself available for perimeter looks. Did a great job faking on a shot, driving the lane and dropping it off to Nicholas Claxton. And then, as we've always said, he's a smart basketball player. When Mikhail Bridges drives the baseline, it's Yuta Watanabe that is filling the lane and making himself available for the easy flush. Does that mean that you can go to him for 20 minutes a night? Of course not. But like the seven minutes and the plus two and the two points and the two assists and the rebound, that has value. I, I, I just thought that, that this is all you needed to see to suggest that on a night-to-night basis, you can need a spark and, and any of these players, seven through ten, could be that guy on a given night. Yeah, we said it last podcast that we we don't didn't necessarily agree with the strategy of these super short rotations for this kind of team. I mean, the one thing they have to their advantage is they have a bunch of just pretty good role players on the team, right? Yeah. Like none of them are perfect players, none of them are stars uh, down at the end of the bench, but they all can play. They just don't seem to play enough, and and I just will never understand it. And I I agree with you that this we you know we finally did kind of you know they chose to play slightly different rotations. They started with Cam, went away from that really fast. That's two games in a row. We finally see you to come in and play like some something like, it's not even real minutes, kind of minutes, like a full rotation, right? A full yeah. half rotation or something like that. And Sumner does too. Uh, they look super rusty because they mm-hmm. just haven't played very much. Like Sumner had a couple of especially. Uh, well, you, I mean, you did too. Like you did like let a, a rebound get out of his hand. Like he yep. was, a, he, he missed time on a ball. Like it wasn't perfect. I thought they overall played well. It's, I'm not knocking mm-hmm. them. I'm just saying like, there was a little bit of rust. It's to be expected. These guys don't play, which is the other case for just playing these guys a little bit more. Like these guys should just play 12, 13 minutes a game, right? Yeah. Like something like that. They're just, the nets are just not the kind of team that should be running a seven man rotation at that point. This point, we said it last podcast. We've said it multiple times now. And in some ways, this game proved that that we're correct, right? That we're correct in in this assessment that this team is just not running proper rotations for the personnel that they have. Like they have personnel that's just flexible enough and wing heavy enough to be able to cause some problems on defense for their team. Hopefully, ride some hot hands with shooting, you know, uh, from three. You get a little more rest for some of these guys who got to be getting a little burned out here, like guys like Bridges and Dinwiddie that are just playing massive minutes with a huge load on them offensively. I just, I'll, I won't, I guess I can't understand it. Like, I don't understand why this is the plan. It doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I, I, not with this personnel, not with this personnel. This is not like a top heavy team. This is like 
a middling team that has lots of NBA role players on it. Like, yeah. why are these some of these guys playing five minutes a game or not playing at all? It doesn't make any sense. Even one more guy on the level of a Spencer Dinwiddie, you know, just below a level of a Mikhail Bridges. Give me one more at any position, one more player like that, and you can start to make the case for shortening up the rotation. But it just doesn't feel like that should be the case. We'll see what happens going forward here. Rather than belabor this point because we have we've highlighted it, now we've got this sample. We'll see where it goes. Let's cover two other topics. The first of which is, Set your watch to it, my friends. If Doug Norrie and I tell you that something is possible for the Brooklyn Nets, they will immediately do everything in their power to absolutely dumpster that theory. Because the Brooklyn Nets are now the sixth seed. They're only a game and a half up on the Miami Heat. Like, they are just dancing on the edge of that playing game, which just two games ago, it felt like, hey, you got this three-game three, three lead over Miami. The, the Knicks and all will be battling with them. And, and listen, there's, still, they, there's plenty of games to go here, as few as they may be to be able to get back on track and grab a win. This was a winnable game, and that makes it frustrating in and of itself. But worth noting there. The other one, you can give your two cents on that. And the other one is, obviously, we might as well cover it before the weekend, um, that they are intending to sign Moses Brown and try a new guy after not bringing back um, Nerland's Noel after his one 10-day contract. Yeah, um, the play-in is going to be a little bit of a sweat here for sure. Um, I, you know, we sh never should have like locked it up. Maybe we shouldn't have like looked. We should have had our eyes going in both directions instead of just up. Um, obviously, because knowing how the NBA season can go, there's yeah. still a lot of games that, like we said before, the Nets' schedule is schedule is set to get a lot easier here. Like they, they they've cleared away most of the good teams yep. on the remaining games. They're going to have one of the easier schedules down the stretch. So I think again, from a soft landing standpoint, the nets are going to have that. Um, it would have been nice to have pulled out like one of these last two yeah. though, though at the same time, if we're being fair, so did we, Denver. I was going to say, we probably penciled that Denver one. The Denver's lost like six total games at home this year. The nets were one of them. I like, we probably had penciled that one in for a loss. So, like it's so, you know, it gives, it gives and it takes, but um, in general, yeah, it would have been, you know what it mostly is it's mostly when like the game looks winnable <laughs> that's what that's kind of yeah. where i that's that's the only place that i actually push back a little bit is because if the game looks winnable that's where I, that's where it just gets a little frustrating when you're like hey it's at home you, you maybe have a chance here against the kings and you don't pull it out and by the way just as the reminder um four games coming up the first the next three will be at home including this Kings game four in a row Denver, Cleveland, Cleveland, and then Saturday, March 25th at Miami. So what happens over these next three games for both teams is going to really tell you how critical that could be and whether or not the Nets do find themselves in that playing scenario, which, by the way, that is what it is. Again, we'll still end up talking about rotations and why they should be using more players and checking out this depth. And what I did mention yesterday was like, do it because some of these guys, Sumner, Yuta, they have youth on their side. Like, they're not old players by any stretch. They could still have value for you. When it comes to Moses Brown, are you, are you surprised that they're going to throw another something at the wall here? We talked about this off podcast, so I thought it was worth just uh, crystallizing our thoughts for all the fans. I know they're, they're clamoring for it. This feels different than Nerlens Noel, who's an older veteran. You understand what he is and what he's going to be for you if he can stick around. Moses Brown feels like if he shows us a little something here, it might be nice to have a younger player that could be a part of what we want to try to do going forward. Like he's been productive at a young age. I think there's, there's still an unknown ceiling for that player as opposed to Noel. I, I mean, I, 
I don't mind the signing because I think you should just take some stabs at younger guys. Um, yep. I think that from that standpoint, I'd rather try guys like this than Nerlens. I do think I, you know, and we talked about a little bit of this off air, but the the Nerlens, the Nerlens one was like, hey, you're a veteran. We're not going to have to coach you up too much here. You know, understand a lot of different schemes. Like it's just there are there are advantages to adding guys like that where you just kind of you know you're not going to have to do a lot right it's like not a this isn't a project right it's like hey maybe you just got a little left in the tank maybe you don't we'll see there's not a lot of risk here the moses brown one's a little different the you know he's on a younger age curve look i i i my personal feeling is that it probably is just going to look a lot of like young nerland's noel like i don't think it's going to be very much different like totally different from that respect i'm not don't think he's going to turn into like the starting center or anything like that. So, um, but I do in general agree with taking shots on slightly younger guys because I just think, I don't think there was any chance to like really find something in Noel. There's some chance with these yeah. other, other younger guys that, you know, new, new, new uh, scenery and whatever can change the outlook for a dude. So I, th- I from that standpoint, I'd much rather just trend younger in that position than older. And I will say, like my him being a younger player, a project, someone, whatever, whatever you think that's I can be. This, unlike the Noel one, feels more more of an indictment again around uh, around um Dayron Sharp, like because oh, yeah. what, whatever you think, like play him. And by the way, like in the old swath of what you're trying to accomplish here, we know what he can and can't do as of right now. But the fact that you're bringing in a guy who's 25 years old when you have a young player who's been in your system and is there, like maybe he can continue to develop as well. But at some point. If I'm, if I'm damn on sharp, I'm going, huh, and bring another, bring another guy you want to bring in as the, well, as the big off the bench, like just over and over again here. I just think he's, I think it's clear what he's, they, they don't, it's over. Like, you yeah. know what I mean? At least for this season, it's, it's done. Yeah, uh, maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe forever. I like in terms of how they view him as like a long-term asset. I, I don't think they view him as one. Right. I, I think that's, I think where. I think at least that is kind of solved. Now they have team options on him for the, this is Dayron for the next two seasons. We'll see. This doesn't scream like you're. We believe in. We believe in the future, right? They just keep signing guys off the street to play in his place, um, and no. so that's kind of. I probably just actually just tells the whole story with Dayron. Why don't we go ahead and close out on this? 24 minutes, four or six from the field, two or four from beyond the arc, three rebounds, one assist, ten points. Kessler Edwards. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. 24 minutes for the Sacramento Kings and draining triples. Like, it just, that has to be the case. There's two guys on the Brooklyn Nets and Dayron Sharp and Cam Thomas that can't find any playing time. And the second round pick that we dumped off to Sacramento with cash is actually hurting us in a game that we kind of wanted to win. He's playing real minutes. He was awesome the other night against Phoenix. Like, he went 12 and 7. I, like, there's. <laughs> I'll t- we'll, we'll talk about this at some point, and the team's different, and he's not whatever. But in the old, like, you just jettison that dude in that moment of trying to do something. With what you kept, with what you kept around, there's I'm at least going to be mildly irritated that he can – apparently he can function, and we'll see this probably with Cam Thomas. And now I won't be shocked if it happens with Dayron Sharp too. Yeah, well, this is a bummer way to end it. All right, we're going to get out of here. We'll stick around here on YouTube. Appreciate everyone that's jumped into YouTube live after this game. We'll stay and answer a few questions if you want to throw them up there in the chat. Make sure you are subscribed to Locked on Nets YouTube or Locked on Nets Podcast, wherever you listen. Totally free, the best way to help the podcast. Let's just say I was deeply unhappy, but I didn't know it because I was so happy all the time. That's Harris in L.A. Story, as performed by Stephen Martin. Oh, there you go. One of the all-time great poets. We'll be back again next week talking more Brooklyn Nets basketball.
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.